In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who haven't been able to be with us on these snowy Sundays, uh, we began the new year by thinking together about um, living a life that matters. And um, how do we go about doing that? And we are looking at that question through the lens of this wonderful Old Testament character, Jacob, whose whole life, really, is the story of how he climbs the ladder from who he is to who he has it in him to become, Jacob's ladder. And um, he climbs that ladder by wrestling with the different parts of himself, the good and the bad, the strong and the weak, um, the desire to be successful and the desire to be thought of as a good person. He has to own all of these parts of himself and wrestle with those. And as we saw last week, it is in that wrestling that he becomes a better person. So the Bible divides the story of Jacob's life into three acts much as we could do with our lives. Um, the first act is about Jacob as a youngster, and it's defined by whose child he is. The second act is about Jacob as a young man, defined by uh, whose husband he is. And act three, of course, is about Jacob as an adult, defined by whose father he is. So if Jacob's life or for that matter, yours or mine, were being presented on the stage, those several acts would be divided up by a curtain coming down and a brief intermission. However, you are aware that the Bible uh, proceeds in sort of an uninterrupted flow. Even the chapters in your Bible were added later. And so it uses instead a pair of literary devices instead of a curtain. So Jacob's early years are separated from his young adulthood by a dream at Bethel. His later stages of life are se separated from his middle years by a wrestling with the angel story that we had last week, his, his dream at Jabbok. So Jacob's dream um, serves to answer two questions that were tormenting him. Um, two questions that I think most adolescents wind up asking at some point along the way. Where am I going with my life? And what kind of person am I going to grow up to be? In the dream, God answers, uh, God assures Jacob that he will find favor in God's sight. He will outgrow his embarrassing and sometimes destructive habits and he will become a good person. And God promises that he will be successful. He will leave his mark on the world. It is exactly what Jacob needs to hear at this point in his life. Along the way, I have known more than my share of high school and college students um, who, including myself, needed to be redeemed from self-doubt by those very thoughts offered, if not by a parent, by a teacher, or a coach, or maybe even somebody in a congregation. You're a good person, sometimes despite the things that you have done. 
and you are going to grow up to be somebody who matters. Every adolescent needs to hear those words, maybe more than once. So spurred on by this reassuring promise of the dream, the first thing that Jacob does is he falls in love. <laughs> he winds up at the well of his uncle Laban. And um, here he sees this wonderfully attractive woman named Rachel. And he impulsively kisses her. Little Appalachian, yes. Uh, but these are good biblical family values. Uh, in, fa <laughs> in fact, Jacob is the first and perhaps the only biblical figure to fall romantically in love and then set his sights on marrying her. In fact, Jacob marries both of Laban's daughters at the same time which really messes with those people in our society who want to say, marriage has been the same since the beginning of time. You know, one man and one woman. <laughs> but we can also see Jacob's behavior as a response to his dream. If Jacob is going to climb that ladder from who he is, to who he has it in him to become, one of the things that he must outgrow is his habit of always relying only on himself. In other words, he has to let other people into his life. The theologian William Everett defines sin as rejecting relationship, be that private or public. A sinner, he says, is a soul enclosed in the prison of the self. Or as Dostoevsky put it, hell is the suffering of being unable to love. So Jacob's love for Rachel, his willingness to sacrifice for her, remember, seven years of unpaid labor, and remember, this is the same guy who a couple of weeks ago uh, wouldn't give his own brother a, a pot of stew without getting something in return. So this willingness to sacrifice is really the beginning of Jacob growing up, becoming not only more likable, but a more honorable person. And it takes the presence of another person in his life for whom he is willing to change to bring that transformation about. So, why do we expose ourselves to this whole process of searching and rejection um, that leaves not only adolescents but adults of all ages feeling so vulnerable? In Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, there is this frightening vision of a world where everyone is happy because the government has figured out how to separate sex from reproduction. Children are now created in a laboratory. And sex is therefore purely recreational. It is never problematic. At one point, one of the people in the novel um, finds a copy of Shakespeare's Othello, and they just can't understand it. 
what is the matter with this guy getting so upset that his wife is sleeping with somebody else? Why do we set ourselves up this way? Why are parents and children so emotionally enmeshed with each other, with the power to generate more pride and at the same time inflict more guilt than people in any other relationship? Why can't we just do as other animals do and send our children off into the world as soon as they are able to walk and never see them again? I know, tempting, isn't it? So tempting. Why is love and the search for love and the pain of loving, why is that the subject of so many songs and soap operas and date movies? We do what we do because for us, love is more than reproduction. It's more than sex. I know some of you have been saying that to him for a long time and really only one elbow per worship service. <laughs> because love meets our need to matter. Dr. Dean Or Ornish writes, our souls are emotionally starved when we deal with strangers all day long. We need people who will tell us that we are special, that we are irreplaceable. We need to feel loved. And, he goes on to say, we also need to give love and to make a difference in someone else's life. So adolescence desperately crave relationships to counter the first of Jacob's fears, and that is that they are flawed and no one will ever love them. When, like Jacob, they are having issues with their parents or their siblings, they need the reassurance that somebody finds them likable. Eventually, hopefully, they evolve to a more mature understanding of love that deals with the second part of Jacob's dream, and that is the need to matter, to make a difference, a real difference in somebody else's life, which leads to our deep-seated need for friendship. Ellen Goodman, a columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, a number of years ago, wrote a book with her BF, her best friend, Patricia O'Brien. It was called, I Know Just What You Mean. This is what they wrote. Friendship has no biological purpose, no economic status, no evolutionary meaning. But a new friend can reintroduce a woman to herself, allowing her to look at herself with a new pair of eyes and a different mindset. Flaws can be recast as strengths, self-doubts lifted by acceptance. Friends, they write, are more likely than family to encourage change. This instinct for friendship uh, it seems to be with us from a very early age. I'm wondering if you saw the clip that came out 
Um, it was right around New Year's. It was all over social media. It, it's worth seeing again. Sandy, do we have that? Do you remember this? It's the adorable video of toddler besties that's melting hearts across planet Earth. Little legs. I know, my night is complete. <laughs> the video captures two-year-olds Maxwell and Finnegan running towards each other, arms wide open in their New York City neighborhood. They meet in a great big hug. You are just adorable. Maxwell's dad posted the moment on Facebook. This is just so beautiful. If we could all be like this. The hug is clearly striking a chord. It has millions of views. The boys met one year ago and have become inseparable. They hold hands whenever they're together and even have their own language that no one else understands. The video ends as the boys run off together towards their next adventure. <laughs> I read about a man, a father, who turned down the economic opportunity of a lifetime because it would have meant taking his two teenage daughters out of their high school and away from their friends and moving them to a small southern community where they would undoubtedly have felt like a minority. When his daughters heard about the possible move, each of them broke into tears. They said they would move in with their friends rather than go with him. He actually contemplated moving to that new community alone until the girls finished high school, but eventually decided that that was unrealistic, and he said no to the offer. When asked, did you worry that you were giving your teenagers too much power in the family, granting them a virtual veto over your professional life, he said no. Had we all been five years younger, I probably would have taken that job and brought them along, kicking and screaming. And I suspect it would have been something I regretted. I might have succeeded in the job, but at great cost to the people who mean more to me than anything else in my life. I'm glad my family forced me to realize what my priorities are. Adolescence, we all know, uh, can be a pretty lonely and frightening country to visit if you don't have a circle of friends. I'm thinking of a woman happily married, um, very successful in her career, who still cries every time she thinks about entering that cafeteria for lunch and wondering whether a group of girls will welcome her at their table. Of course, we never outgrow this need for friendship either. Um, in fact, most studies indicate that the older we get, the more we need friends. An alternative source of emotional nourishment when our families isn't enough. The truth is there will be things we like about ourselves, parts of ourselves that friends can reinforce far better than our families can. We are social creatures by nature. That's part of why we come to church, right? Instead of staying home in our jammies and talking to God in the comfort of our own homes. Yes? I remember only one sentence from the one anthropology class I took in college. A man 
who had spent his entire lifetime studying chimpanzees in the wild, closed his book by saying, one chimpanzee cannot be a chimpanzee. A chimp needs other chimps in order to become what it was meant to be. I'm not really sure if that's true of chimps. I could ask my older daughter down at the Miami Zoo. But I do know that that's true of people. We are who we love. Jacob could not become Israel until he could get beyond himself and let others into his life because some growth only happens in relationships. For my money, one of the saddest commentaries of American life is that we have made it so hard for men to have male friends. We have done such a good job of teaching them that all men are at best potential rivals or potential customers. And so they should never appear vulnerable, which is why having a men's fellowship and a retreat like next week is something to really celebrate. Some of you know uh, I do quite a few funerals for non-churched people in our community. It's really a ministry that you provide for the community through me. And sometimes um, when I'm talking to these people, uh, they will say to me, uh, pastor or father or reverend, they never know what to call me. <laughs> We're not very religious people. Do we have to have this visitation thing and all of that? And sometimes, not always, but sometimes I will say, well, you might really want to consider doing that. Not for God's sake, but for yours. Because the truth is, you're going to feel pretty alone in all of this. And you need to know that you're not alone. And you need to do it for your friend's sake as well, because they feel your pain and they want to take some of that on themselves by grieving with you. Which is why we need to make room in our lives for these people who sometimes disappoint us and exasperate us. Because if we hold our friends to too high a standard of perfection, or if they hold us to that, we may wind up lonelier than we really want to be. Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, was asked, where is God? And thankfully, he didn't give one of these um, cliche answers. God is everywhere. God is in the church. God is in the synagogue. Buber would answer that God is in relationships. God is not found in people, he said, so much as between people. When you and I are truly attuned to each other, God comes and God fills that space between us so that we are connected rather than separate. Love and friendship, both critical pieces in living a life that matters. To know that you matter to someone, making a difference in somebody else's life, bringing God into a world that would otherwise be much more selfish, 
and lonely. We are who we love. Amen.